0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here.
0: And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should
1: be above the law.
0: A lot of us talk about that, but you actually actually it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah.
2: That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Mark Kozarotsky. Mark, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing
0: well. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Now, you've written a lot, of, one more than two books, but you've written two books more recently: Thirty B Six, Deposing Corporations, Organizations, in the Government, and. You have one that just came out today: deposition
1: obstruction breaking through. Uh, is there a common theme to these books? Well, one of the things I've learned is our society, and particularly the litigation society, has kind of evolved into win at all costs. Um, and there's there's cheating, and there's hiding, and there's obstruction everywhere in this world we call litigation. And it was really kind of, when I was growing up, my, my dad, you know, taught me that, you know, if you cheat to win, you really didn't win. Um, and it, it's kind of a the theme that I've had with me. And over the 40 years of practice, you know, I've taken on all kinds of giants, you know, from multinational corporations to mom-and-pop Shops. And I've learned that Rather than trying to, to win their cases on their merits, they win, try to win by hiding information. So my books have been focused on how to cut past the nonsense. And as Jim Morrison said, break on through to the other side. Yeah. What motivated you
0: to dedicate so much of your practice to, because we all deal with it somewhat, but it takes a lot of effort and time to break through. stuff. So I think a lot of people just give up and settle.
1: Well, I guess, you know, I I grew up kind of scrappy. Uh, I have a family history of scrappy parents. They're immigrants. Um, My mother was a freedom fighter in in the fall of Warsaw, fought in the Polish underground. She was captured by the Nazis, went to a concentration camp. My father was a Polish soldier who... Got swept up by Stalin and went to a gulag in the north, north of the Arctic Circle. Wow. And um, and then they immigrated. You know, when they when they got out, they went to Italy. They went to school there, and then they came to the United States. And so, from birth, I was taught to stand up for principles. And you know, we joked that I was I was genetically bred, you know, yeah. to, to be a, a street fighter. And so. You know, from when I was in sports, you know, I was scrappy. But then when I got into the practice of law, um, I had to view it, you know, from another angle. And a lot of great mentors along the way at these conventions took me under their wing and shared things with me. And I started studying and learning how to use the rules to win legally without cheating. And I can go home at night feeling a lot better.
0: Yeah.
1: And the practice of law is a lot less stressful if you know the rules of engagement. Because you can just say, let's let someone else decide, and all the huffing and puffing doesn't do anything. What did you do, I guess, to learn the tools that you needed to, to break through and, and you know use the rules to get to the truth? Well, it started by having my backside handed to me many times. Um, One of the the sayings I teach my children is dad has got a lot of wisdom and wisdom is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. (laughs) And um, so a lot of it was trial and error because there weren't people who really dug into the law. Back then they used to say I don't do legal research. I'm a trial lawyer. Well, I learned that That's a good way to lose cases because the best football players, the best basketball players are the ones who know the rules and they know how to use them. And so I started studying through a lot of the AAJ programs and then I got involved in the faculty uh, and then ended up teaching with programs with all kinds of organizations and learning more and more. And the more I learned, um, the more I realized this isn't that hard. If you play by the rules, you can force the other side to play by the rules.
0: So what are some of the techniques you've learned, uh, first of all, to, to to figure out when are they actually hiding something from you?
1: I just start with the premise that they are. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you see things like objection, that without waving, I'm going to give you everything, that really is code for saying, I'm going to give you everything that doesn't hurt us. Um, when people use qualifiers in their answers in a deposition, uh, that means they're hiding things. So, what we've learned and what I've learned, and I've developed techniques on this, I've written about in the 30B6 book, um, is we first want to gather the universe of information that's publicly available. And my God, you know, you can find anything on the internet. I found out that it was. Colder in Minnesota yesterday than it was on Mars. Wow. You know, it, it was um, nice to be in Miami lately. <laughs> yeah. and so there's lots of things you can find, uh, and then you get and then you got to actually read it and study it, and then see how the known information comes together. Then you start seeing what makes sense. You know, they call it common sense, but you know, you really do. Does this story make sense? And I try to find out. Does our story make sense? Does the other guy's story make sense? From there, then we started thinking about what is the universe of information out there that our adversaries would have? They could be documents, they could be other testimony, electronically stored information. Uh, I learned this in a civil rights case 30 years ago that the key to the case was electronic. And I, I get that information first because then you can control people with the documents.
0: It is amazing what uh, what you find when you dig. We had a case recently where the driver, the truck driver, was texting and driving when he hit our client, mm-hmm. uh, and he had had a prior uh, write-up for texting and, and driving. And they said, "Well, how did that happen?" Well, we have a drive. We have like a cam system that when certain decelerations happen, right? And I hit a pothole, and I happen to have it in my thing right and that was their story and so we compelled the video and what he was doing is he was on his phone the in the middle lane the left lane got a left green arrow and started going forward so they can turn left he (coughs) sees that out of the corner of his eye he goes forward hits the car in front of him so he actually had a prior crash the the two videos their crash and our crash look identical yeah but had we just accepted their story it would have been, Why well, I had a pothole I was disciplined I, you know.
1: yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say everybody's a liar um, but I have found that when people are backed into a corner and they're going to be held accountable it's amazing how many people will create a truth in their own mind so they don't have to accept responsibility for what they did and it's been my job to always find that out and typically what we find is we always want to find out what happened we want to find out why it happened because the why is the critical part and when people start hiding the truth that becomes the perfect storm
0: Yeah. and why is so important because when the jury understands why they did wrong then they understand what they need to do to fix it
1: exactly that's because what happens is everybody makes mistakes. and we live in a society where they say, well stuff happens, so um, you know're not you know we're not going to just drag someone in the courtroom in there. But if we structure this as of what it really is that someone has made some conscious decisions, they made a conscious decision to fudge on their medical records. they make a conscious decision to understaff nursing home. they make a conscious decision to make a trucking Company driver drive longer hours or without training. That decision making puts everybody else at risk. And what happens is, if the juries understand that, then they're motivated to follow the law to hold the wrongdoers accountable.
0: So, what are some of the tools you use then? When you know you've got a, an inkling that they're hiding something from you? What are some of the tools you use to
1: discover that and to break through and get it? Well, the, the vast majority of the my adversaries are institutions. And since they're institutions, I can use Rule 30B-6, which is a deposition by designation. You know, rather than saying, I want to depose Joe, I want to depose the the corporation or the organization or the partnership or the government and say, you you pick whoever you want. I don't care. I want to know this information. And I tell them what I want to know. And through that I can craft concepts to um, force them to disclose information. But before we do that, I gotta force the disclosure of their electronic information or their documents, um, or their histories, because they're not going to be forthright in telling us. Then once we do that, I have to deal with the games that the, the litigators do. You know, the, the litigators are the, the people who want to hide evidence. You know, There's the a big difference between a trial lawyer and a litigator. Right. A trial lawyer wants to tell a story, a litigator wants to hide evidence. Um, and so I use tools to extract that With through depositions and there's a whole series of different kinds of depositions we can talk about if you want.
0: I would love to, yeah, that's uh, because one challenge I I face and I've gone back and forth between trying to compel all the documents before I do any depositions or get what I can and then take a deposition so that I have some evidence because it's hard to go, they don't necessarily, the lawyer in the courtroom is not necessarily lying to the judge when he says, as far as I know, these things don't exist because they haven't told him. Right. He might not have asked, but they haven't told him. Exactly. And so when you're going there and you're asking a judge to compel something without proof that it actually exists, it can be tough, but then you take the deposition you prove that it exists, then you've got to convince the judge to let you re-depose somebody or depose somebody else. So. What, what, how do you approach that, Michael? You're
1: spot on on that, and I've actually evolved some new techniques in the last two years on on that. Um, it, I find that despite the prohibitions of boilerplate objections, they're universal. You know, what's your name? Objection, vague. You know, right. it's a. Uh, so what we have now done, and this is it's going to be kind of a long answer. Right. The. Um, we start with a lot of case analysis. I mean, we storyboard it, we, we put all of our information in buckets of information and then say, what is it we're trying to accomplish? And we start with the assumption, and it's nothing but a theoretical assumption that one person could provide all information. We structure a, an outline of what that one person who knows 100% would tell us. We'd work it and rework it, and then we identify what documents in electronically stored information would support any one of these principles. This is still case analysis. Then we create what would be a request for production. But we don't serve that because we're going to get boilerplate objections to everything, even though they're illegal. So what we do then is we create a 30B6 designee deposition with a schedule of documents in it, but we don't request the documents. We say, we'd like someone to provide all information known to the organization about what documents exist in this category. What's the retention destruction policy? What is the purpose of these documents that creates relevance? How are the documents shared? So, we can determine if these are legitimately confidential or not, is if there are no protections, and then the important part is where are they located, how are they organized, and what are all the available methods of search? We haven't asked for anything. All we're trying to do is create a record so that we can design the most proportional and efficient way to get it the the documents or the electronically stored information, and now what we've done is we've preempted all the boilerplate objections before we ask for them.
0: And you don't get do you get any pushback that that's trying to do discovery on discovery or
1: that's what it, it can't be discovery on discovery because we haven't asked for the documents yet. Oh wow! We're not asking for their search. so the discovery on discovery is tell us how you did this search we're not asking that we're saying what are the ways it could be searched for so we can ask the most economical way to do it and what's beautiful about this is if you read the amendments the 2015 amendments to the to the federal rules to rule 26 the big proportionality amendment in the committee notes the rules committee said this very thing that I'm talking about is so well entrenched in our jurisprudence, it doesn't even have to be in the rule anymore. And, it's, and they talk in terms of custodial depositions to identify how to craft the certs. And I talk about that in my book. That's a great idea. And then, and then once you say get this, uh, you make the request, and they say vague. Well, no, you've already defined it. How do you define Uh, a personnel file it's this and this how do you use that term in your business Okay, we're going to use that term Uh, what's the purpose of it we use it for X, Y, and Z so now it's relevant how do you share it we share it by email does it go on a blast email everybody in the company gets it do they have to sign confidentiality agreements before you send them no is there any tools in there no To, to, to hide it no. Um, how hard is it to look for? Really easy. We just call it up on the computer. How about if you want to print it? Push the print button. Anything overburdensome about that? No. But now all of those objections, which they will make, you can respond with a meet confer letter that here's the record of your own person, therefore you don't have a factual basis. I'm requesting that you withdraw the objection and give us a complete answer. Now they've got a problem.
0: Yeah. Now, that is a wonderful way to practice, but it's very different than just, okay, I've got a nursing home case, so I'm going to call someone who's done a nursing home case, so I'm going to get their stock depot notice and uh, request for production and send out what they did.
2: We'll return to Part 2 of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation.
0: How do you structure your life where you have time To go and storyboard and and plot out a case and then take this deposition and then craft. uh, How do you do do that?
1: Just say no to cases. Okay. We turn down six to eight cases a day. We pick our cases um, carefully and then we work with smaller caseloads. That's the one part. And, you know, what I've learned is. I used to be a volume lawyer. I'd have 250-300 cases. I was just flying by the seat of my pants all the time. My stomach hurt. I had ulcers. The skin would come off my hands. It was horrible. And I didn't know the rules, so when defense lawyers would yell at me, I'd think they were they were valid. What I learned was, and the model that I had been taught before was, well, you know, you got to get as many cases as you can, and then you settle them because there's a a fixed value on it and you want to get that fixed value as quickly as you can with as little work as possible. And I bought into that nonsense. Well, that that assumes that the other side decides the value of the case. What we've learned is they don't fix the value. They've got to come up with a number that will make me go away. And we found that by putting more work into the the good cases, our hourly return actually goes up. We've worked on it a lot more, but the case gets a lot bigger because we prove the case, and we get the evidence. And that's the important part, is getting the evidence.
0: I found the exact same thing. And we, at one time, and I... I kind of inherited a law firm. I had a a person I went to work for as a young lawyer with three weeks' notice decided to become a public defender. And I ended up with a firm on my own way before I was ready to have one. But I used to have over 200 cases just for me. Three legal assistants, me, no other lawyers. Not a good way to practice. Uh, I mean, most of them weren't huge cases and we managed, but, uh, and then over the years, and then we went down to like 80 to 100 cases per lawyer, and now we're trying to be like about 20 cases per lawyer and maybe may be getting lower than that and, and I found the fewer cases each lawyer in my firm has the more revenue each lawyer in my case generates right it's, we're, our settlement values have, have gone up the time from intake to settlement has gone down the satisfaction of being able to be a craftsman of actually doing good you know, there's just it's a satisfaction to doing it right to finding the stuff has gone way up
1: Michael you've hit it spot on you really have and it's really the personal satisfaction that makes you feel good about yourself and it, and I've been practicing law now this is my 40th year and I'm not going away because I enjoy it you know and I, and, um, and I didn't enjoy it when I was running by the seat of my pants all the time because I didn't feel good about myself
0: and it's just having enough belief in yourself and getting rid of the fear that if you tell somebody no like I have a almost all referral lawyer-based practice and it's amazing that the more I tell people no, it's almost like a challenge to them. They said, "No, I don't do these kind of cases. I only want to do this kind of case." And I, you know, I just the, the conversation I have with one of my guys, like you and I are working on this paraplegia case together. This is a big case. If I take <coughs> this other case that you want me to work on, that's time I'm taking away from right the big case, right? And so there are hundreds of other lawyers. I mean, ten years ago I would have loved that case. There are hundreds of other lawyers that that is a big case to them and they would run with it, and you and the client are better off working with them. And, and they, and I haven't lost my referring lawyer to those other people, right. uh, and if anything, you know, he still comes to me, and then I say, well, here's a young lawyer I met, I bet this lawyer would do a good job, or, you know, I don't like marginal automotive product cases anymore, but here's somebody that does them, and they, right. they're right? they good at them, and we still have the relationship, I haven't lost anything, right. it's just getting rid of that, it was all in my own head.
1: Well, you, as you speak to relationships, the other big piece is, If you have more time to communicate with your client, your client will like you more and trust you more. And if there's a problem with the case and you've shared that with them along the way, then they'll trust you. And if you say no to a bogus offer because it's a better case, they will trust you. That communication builds everything. And, And they'll send cases to you. And you know what? If you do this, you know who else will send cases to you? defense lawyers. Exactly. Because it's a lot more important to be respected than loved. And when their mama gets hurt, they want someone they respect.
0: Yeah. One of the things you mentioned, I'm just kind of going back, is one of the things you do in your planning is storyboarding a case. And I don't know that all of our
1: listeners have seen what storyboarding is. So can you explain what it is to storyboard a case? Well, the process is, what you ultimately want to do is talk about um, what your story is going to be to the jury and how do you focus uh, the jury to um, consider the information that's important in your case. A lot of important information processing theory, and a lot of people have written about it, Neil Feigenson has, Cusumano and Wenner have written on it, Rick Friedman's written on it, Carl Bentinger, David Ball, and they're all fabulous resources. Um, And I don't just subscribe to any school, I I try to learn all of them because we're professionals. It's not a checklist practice. Exactly. Um, When they zig, we gotta zag. And so, you you know, I'm a blues heart player. When I turned 50, I took up the heart. The harmonica, and you learn riffs, and you got lots of different ones you use. And if you're playing with someone and they pitch something to you, you know what to jump into. And we get a lot of riffs for um, our trial practice, for depositions, for storyboarding. So, what we do is we start first with a very simple thing chronological beginning to end. But that story is not always the most persuasive one. Because the jury and any listener will start focusing on whatever they hear first. So we don't want to focus on our client. We want to have them focus on the decision-making of the, um, the wrongdoer. And um, if I can share a story with you. Yeah, please. Um, there, 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 there is a lawyer. You know, you've never met him, but you know him. Uh, he's a transactional lawyer three-button suit. Wears gray ones and blue ones. White shirts only. Lace shoes. Um, big firm. Goes to work every day at eight. Leaves at five. No matter what. Light clockwork. work. Takes the same route every single day. When he gets to work he uh, has a sequence of things he does. Uh, when he gets home he and his wife have cocktails and he goes to bed at nine. And he has been doing this for 20 years. Um, and one day he does something really crazy. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon. and He's done with his work and he decides to go home at 2.30. And not only that, he's going to drive through the park to do it. And as he's driving through the park, um, sunny afternoon, a carload of drunk teenagers blows at the intersection, hits him and kills him dead on the spot and um we're talking tragedy here and at the funeral everyone's talking about god what a horrible thing if only if only what
0: if only he hadn't left work at two o'clock if only he hadn't taken a different route
1: if exactly only and neil feigenson wrote about that in legal blame 92 percent of the people blame the lawyer for leaving work early and don't blame the drunk drivers for going through the intersection because the focus was on that information availability principle. If the story is retold, there's these kids who skipped school and they they stole a bunch of beer and they were driving through intersections and cutting nuts and got drunk. They're doing this all day long at 2.30 in the afternoon their luck ran out, and they hit a car and killed the man. And at the funeral, everyone was talking about what a horrible thing that this fine man was killed, if only. Yeah, if only those kids had gone to school, If
0: only they had drank. Right. only the parents and
1: had... So, so that's an information sequencing thing. So we storyboard the case to, to focus on the decision-making of the wrongdoer, and we bring up the plaintiff at the end. And then when we tell the case, then... We go, we start taking it even further. Through whose eyes do we tell the story? From a bystander watching it, from someone who knew that they were driving, from the kid's standpoint? You know, and the story can be told five or six different ways, a hundred different ways. And that point of view makes a difference. I mean, Spielberg does it all the time. Who's telling the story? And it, it's really powerful. So that's how we storyboard. Awesome. Thank you. Going back to the breaking
0: through, so we started with you do your, your deposition to find out what to ask for and what exists. You request then the information documents, electronically
1: stored information. I know I, I talk about what they are first right uh, in a deposition. I don't request them. That's no. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was
0: trying to say. I didn't quite get it right. Yeah, you find out through the deposition. You establish what exists, what it's called, why it's relevant. Then you request it. Then you make them give it to you.
1: What's the next step? Well, the next step now is you actually read them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how many people do discovery, and they don't read the answers, the interrogatories, or documents. They're just checking it off. I've talked to some, I've done some model product cases, and back when,
0: now it's all electronic, but he said yeah. Back when they used to get 50 boxes, yeah. and then you, part of the settlement, you had to return them. And they said, like, half the time, they come back, and the tables still on them. They'd never been read, never been yeah.
1: opened. So after you read them, you analyze what you have to do. And now, usually that deposition, the first time out, doesn't work, by the way. Because 30B6 requires an organization to provide all information known or available to the company. And so they have to prepare the witness, and they seldom do. So there's a whole structure we talk about in in my seminars and in the book about how do you ask the questions to establish that they are or not prepared. You know, who are all the witnesses who have information responsive to this question? What are all the documents that are responsive to this question? What is the ESI? And what has the organization done to make sure that witness has that information? So, that, because then you, you'll often find that they're not prepared. So that means you have to start over. Yeah.
0: What I find is that
1: someone that's has nothing
0: to do with whatever happened. Right. Uh, often someone who's a professional testifier, mm-hmm. and then has only read the documents that were produced to be in the case, and not any other documents. Hasn't right. you know? Has maybe talked to one or two people, but usually somebody within their legal department and. Then you don't get. You just get someone that's parodying the company well, line. Like, like this, there's,
1: there's a case called Scariata. I believe it's out of Mississippi, maybe Alabama. I've got it in my book. And that was a professional testifier that was only prepared to talk about the defense side of a case, not the plaintiff side. Court was unhappy with them, sanctioned them eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and the Eleventh Circuit affirmed it. Wow. So. You need to know those rules, but so once you get those documents, now you use structure. What is the information you're trying to get? You know what do you really want? Not any and all everything on earth. And then the week before trial, I'll try to figure it out. No, you know hunt with you know with a sniper. Know what you're looking for, and start crafting the, these questions in your deposition notice and. Don't say, let's get it off the list, sir. Because every case is different. And what I find that sometimes we spend two, three, four days writing the notice for a four-hour or seven-hour deposition. But once you've thought it through, you get the stuff and you don't have as many depositions. And you have to ask the questions in a way to make sure that they've got the right person, which the cycle goes again. And, you know, that's a two-day seminar of everything you've got to do. But you can structure your questions to prove that they're not ready. Don't lose your temper. Don't lose your cool. Just set it up that you can prove that they're cheating. And then say, you need to bring me someone else. You got your bite at the apples. I respectfully disagree. I'm asking you to bring someone else. Bring your motion, counsel. Fine. I've got a 25-page, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I didn't look, nobody looked, we didn't talk to anybody. I'm the person with most knowledge, and I know 2% of the information. I very seldom find a judge who's tolerant of that. What their judges aren't tolerant of is me asking one question, getting mad, and coming in and saying, I want you to rule on it. Right. no I need a long vetted record with clear sound bites. Did you look in this drawer? No did you look in this book? No did you talk who's in charge of it? Sally, did you talk to Sally? No did anyone tell you what Sally would have to say? No and you boom 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 and you prove the case that they didn't prepare Now now you get an order. And it's a lot different when there's an order. You know, people fudge on the rules, and judges historically don't sanction people for that. But with an order, judges get rough. Yeah. A case called, I believe it's Pioneer Drive versus Nissan out of Montana. The judge says, you don't follow my order, you go to jail. Wow. I like that case.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I do find the judges can... It's one thing when they're playing games with you. It's another thing when they're playing games
1: with the judge. Well, you know, there was that case in Texas, the Fuqua case, where the judge had litigation ending sanctions for people not um, following the judge's order. There's a a
0: case you had. uh, I mean, you had a lot of big verdicts, but one that's, uh, I think, really interesting, and maybe you could tell us a story of how you use these things to get to
1: justice in that case uh, Boswell versus sherburn County. Oh yeah, that was um, that was thirty years ago, but it still is something I'm really proud of. I got a call one day that a, a woman was Native American and got picked up accused of a DUI. Whether she had DUI or not was not relevant. What happened was she was pregnant, and they put her in jail overnight. And she started delivering a baby. And they wouldn't call the doctor. And the baby was born breech and died. There was all kinds of litigation nonsense. And I just didn't like it. I was pissed. I yeah. mean, You don't do that to anybody. It was just wrong. So I got involved on this case. And we litigated it for years. And I had a six-week civil rights trial in federal court. Uh, we went to the circuit twice Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert on it we were the first case ever to apply 1983 to a detainee because she hadn't been arraigned yet so they said you don't get 1983 because she's not a prisoner and the 8th Circuit said no so once they couldn't win on that then they said we didn't know that she was delivering a baby and this was pre-electronic information as Uh, We know it today. The jailer had something known as a telex and we got into the telex and we found that they had sent this telex, it's kind of like a fax, to another jail saying we've got this woman in jail and there's an outstanding warrant for her for the heinous crime of ricing without a license. It's gathering wild rice and it's $100 or $75 or something. Um, Do you want her? And the response was, you know, oh, and in that telex it said, she's pregnant and bleeding. Um, And they said, Springer, we'll get the money later. We don't want the medical bills either. Well, they they kept her anyway. They didn't call a doctor. Um, At one point when her... She passed the plugs, she's holding the blood up to the camera, showing them oh begging for help. They still wouldn't let her go, and ultimately this baby was d- d- delivered and died. Oh. And so then their de- defense was, well, the baby would have died anyway. she was, was 27 weeks pregnant. And so we had to, we had to prove all of these things, uh, including you know that she the baby would have been viable. Um, And once we proved all that, the defense lawyer um, offered me $30,000 and said, why are you spending your time on this? This is just a drunk Indian. And I got madder than hell. Because
0: the only way you can defend it like that is you don't value the other person as a fool. Right, I'm
1: saying, you know, and I used some, you know, colorful, (laughs) some of Polish immigrant Language. Good. And I walked out on the mediation and said, I'm going to call the judge and tell him you're not mediating in good faith. He said, you go for it, big boy, and I'm going to tell him what you just said. And um, we tried that case for six weeks, and the jury was motivated, and at the time it became the biggest verdict ever for the death of an infant. I mean, today it wouldn't be as big a deal, but 30 years ago it changed everything. And as a result of that case, um, women get doctors in jails, That's awesome. um, and detainees get 1983 protection, and I'm proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, 30 years ago, I was
0: excited because I got a job where I got a raise from 335 an hour to 350 an hour, so, you know,
1: money. I started at $15,000 <laughs> a year as a lawyer.
2: Trial Lawyer Nation in partnership with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code 30B619. That's 30B as in beta 619 at checkout to receive 10% off Mark Kozieratsky's products. This Trial Your Nation discount includes 30B-6, Deposing Corporations, Organizations, and the Government, and Anatomy of a Personal Injury Lawsuit. This discount expires August 31st, 2019. And now, back to the show.
0: So you've got a new book that's actually just launched today. You're, uh, you're here at the AHA Seminar in Miami. You're having a, a book signing tomorrow after your talk. Uh, so what's this new book you have about?
1: Well, it's about... Deposition bullies, you know, they're they're deposition bullies masquerading as lawyers, and we've all seen them. They yell, they scream, they obstruct, Um, they tell you uh, you can't ask questions, they do speaking objections to coach their witnesses, and really try to get you off the game. Um, Thomas Pinchon said. If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. And that's what they're trying to do. And I think it's nonsense, and I think it's stressful, and I think it's unprofessional. And I've encountered a lot of them over the years. And it made my stomach hurt a lot. I'd get angry, and I'd dread going to the depositions, and took all the fun out of it. And so I started studying the law about what you can and cannot do in depositions and how do you view it and I, I developed a technique um, learning from the great Muhammad Ali the rope-a-dope mm-hmm. uh, rather than engaging with them, rather than engaging with the slugger, I became a strategist and I just let them go, the more they object the happier I am because and then they think you're weak and they keep doing it. And um, once I've got 400 objections, then I recess the depot and they yell and scream and say, you got your bite, you're never gonna get another depot. I said, Well let someone else decide. And you highlight every time your <laughs> adversary is talking, 32, 40% of the time. Um, and I attach that to, to the motion. And um, I've never had a judge not get upset with the adversary. If I go in and say, I'm going to call the judge or we have one objection and one ruling on the objection, well, the judge is going to rule on the objection. I want a ruling on the conduct. Uh, because this is the, you've got to be playing the long game. But, but to be able to know what to highlight and what to, to ask, you've got to know what the rules are. And so the book will talk about Everything is really viewed through two lenses. And it's really easy once you, you understand that. Lens number one. Can you do this in court in front of a judge in a jury? Can you just go up to the witnesses during cross examination, don't answer that, I need to talk to you and whisper them in the air? Not a chance. Can you yell at your adversary in the courtroom? No. Can you say we're taking a break because I need to tell them how to answer the question? No. You can't. If you can't do it in front of a judge and jury, you can't do it in the depot. So then you know to say, well, wait, what about objections? Um, well, there's a second lens. The second lens is, is it something that can be fixable? And you hear form at foundation. Form is is this the type of question that wouldn't be able to be asked in trial, and therefore you it's an objection to it and you fix it, or the, does a witness have the knowledge Rule 602? Um, do they have the knowledge to say, I I saw the car go or the car ran a red light? Objection foundation. Simple questions: Were you at the corner? Could you look at the intersection? Yes. Did you see what happened? Yes. Tell us what happened. It's fixable. And then the final thing is if someone's misbehaving, you say, please don't make suggestive comments in the presence of a witness. Boom. If you understand those two things, let them run and then show the judge.
0: Yep. And whenever you get mad, you're just you're letting them win.
1: That's right, because you can't get sucked into the vortex. They're trying to get you to ask the wrong questions or get off your mojo. And the more you stay cool, the more angry the bullies get. Well, we used to teach our kids, uh, as you know, you know, bullies in the schoolyard. Um, it's easy to be uh, tough. All you gotta do is be stupid. The hard part is to be tough and stupid. Know when to stand up, when not. And if you know the rules of engagement. It's actually quite pleasant because you know that, yeah, he, they're being abusive right now, but you're Ali on the ropes for six rounds, taking the blows, and in round six in the rumble of the jungle, with one punch, you got a knockout. And that's what you got. You, you take it to the judge and you get a knockout. And if you have lawyers who do pro-hawk and if they get an admonishment, you've just put them out of business because you can't get pro-hawked. With yep. The other
0: thing is, if you don't do that, if you take the bait and you're raising your voice and you say things that you shouldn't have said because you're upset, I mean, not only does it take you out of your plan for the depot, but then the judge looks at, I have two lawyers that are acting like children, I just don't want to deal with either one of them.
1: Exactly. And that's why you've got
0: to take the high ground. It works. Yeah, absolutely. You have a great quote. On your trial guides website, uh, or the trial guides has like a, a page on you, and it's as my parents taught me, and I share with my own children look for and pursue the opportunities to do something meaningful
1: and keep life exciting. Spot on. Uh, my dad taught me that, and I really believe it. And it's in every aspect of your life it's in your work, it's in your relationships, um, it's how you deal with people. Do, the, do things that, you know, are meaningful to you and be exciting. And and don't be afraid of adventure. Don't be afraid. If you go through life in fear, you know, you might as well just lock yourself in a closet.
0: And, you know, well, this has been great, but
1: you can only, you
0: know, we can't go on for two or three days on a podcast, unfortunately. Uh, when you teach a lot. If people want to, first of all, if people want to get your new book, uh, where do we get it? Uh,
1: the... The deposition obstruction book is from the AAJ. Um, you just they, they'll have a website on it, or you can call them, or I can give you the link for it. Um, yeah, we'll have the link of the show notes. Okay, so we'll have the link to the AAJ book. Thirty B six was published by Trial Guides, which is another great publisher. They they've got fabulous books. Um, you know all of Rick Friedman's books and. Carl Bettinger's book—I um, mean, serious books. That I encourage everyone to read. And there's a link on that. You, you just put in trial guides thirty B six, and boom, it pops up.
0: And you said that you
1: teach seminars and stuff on this. I, I do. How do people find out about that if they want to go to one? That's a good question. You know, <laughs> I try to limit myself to one a month. Okay. I, I get invited to do it, uh, every—I could do one every week if I wanted to, but—and. And, I kind of want to have fun in life yeah, doing but I, Do you put it on your own, or
0: do you just speak at other
1: people's events? I, no, just other people asking me to okay. do it. I speak every year at the Advanced Deposition College in New Orleans with AAJ. I usually speak at the AAJ conventions. Uh, uh, and I've spoken in, I believe, now 38 states at the trial lawyer conventions. I, I have one coming up in Utah. I'm speaking to the railroad lawyers in um in Sedona I just got asked to do the Arizona trial lawyers, I just got asked to do the Massachusetts trial lawyers so they just locally promote them
0: Well i really recommend to you the this is something I do locally is put on your own one day uh, where it's just you talking for a day uh, you'll be surprised, I was scared when I first did it that nobody would show up uh, but you learn and can share so much more when you can control, you know, you're not limited to 30 minutes or 45 minutes Uh, you can really
1: teach a lot well you're right and I've actually done full day programs I did one a full day for Vermont last year and a full day for Oregon last year and so you're right a full day program is I mean this stuff is like drinking from a fire hose I mean uh, my law clerk brought his civil procedure book in and it had a page and a half on 30B6 uh my book is five hundred pages, nine hundred footnotes. I mean wow. we, we do two-day programs on that. If uh, he brought in a civil procedure book on depositions, and I couldn't find anything on it. So we got, you know, we got, you know, a 250-page book on all the jurisprudence of deposition conduct. I mean, this new book was designed for people who not only to teach them how to do it, but it's written in a way that you can pull the paragraphs right out of the book and drop them right into your brief. So it makes life a little bit easier and less stressful if you've got more cases and you don't have time to write those motions. You can write the motion in an afternoon, now. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for doing that. It's my privilege.
0: And if somebody wants to get a hold of you to talk about a case or to strategize or consult with you, how do they get
1: that? they called you? They call me. You know, it's... it's uh, it's uh, the Kosharatsky smith law firm, causelaw.com. And I, I literally have people calling me or emailing me every day. It's, um, the, um, <coughs> I feel really privileged to have had the opportunity to empower people. And at this stage of my career, in empowering people not to be afraid and empowering the little guys to go up against Goliath, uh, it makes me feel good about myself, because I know new lawyers, middle lawyers, old lawyers, all of a sudden are now invigorated to stand tall, because what I've taught them through my lectures and my book is the Charlie Chan line, if size were all that mattered, the tiger wouldn't fear the scorpion and you learn the tools, you're the scorpion, and people will respect you. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come today. I've really enjoyed this. It's been my privilege. So I will close with the way I always close, and that's my midlife crisis. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're a regular listener, be sure to visit our website, www.triallawyernation.com, to opt into our mailing list and stay updated on our new episodes. And if you have a Facebook account, send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our podcast before the air, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. If you're not on Facebook, you can always contact us via email at podcast at I love to hear from all of you, so please continue to send us emails. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation
2: trial lawyer nation in partnership with trial guides leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers with books dvds cles live webinars and more visit trialguides.com and use code 30b619 that's 30 b as in beta 619 at checkout to receive 10 percent off mark koziratsky's products This Trial Lawyer Nation discount includes 30B6, Deposing Corporations, Organizations, and the Government, and Anatomy of a Personal Injury Lawsuit. This discount expires August 31st, 2019. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.